as you build out your real estate team, your responsibilities shift and where you spend your time shifts, but it doesn't go away. So don't get into it because you think you're going to build a team and not work again. Your your work is just going to change. Like you might do less showings and less listing appointments, but now you're, you know, doing more lead generation, more training, more recruiting. So it, the work doesn't go away. It just shifts. So don't don't get into it for the wrong reason. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, we are super stoked and honored to have Dan Lesniak on our podcast today. Him and his wife are both incredible entrepreneurs, business people, real estate team leaders, and more. He has done over a billion dollar sales as a billion dollar agent and is a best-selling author of The Hyper Local, Hyper Fast Agent. So today, like always, we're going to start off with a crazy transaction, but then we're going to dive into the elements of team building Dan and his wife have put together an amazing team of 45 agents. And so, Dan, thank you so much for being on the show. And tell us about your craziest real estate transaction you've had so far. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Well, there's been uh, quite a few that, uh, you know, Carrie and I and our, our amazing agents have seen over the years. One that I think kind of jumps to, in my mind now and is a, always a good reminder was uh, this million dollar deal we had. Uh, a few months ago, buyer uh, sends the, the wiring instructor sends the uh, wires the money for the closing. You know, the day before, and uh, turns out it was one of those spammers that you know, or, or I don't know what you call them, hackers that you know, spoofed the spoofed the title company's email, sent fake instructions, and uh, it was pretty oh. nerve wracking for a while because this buyer didn't know if they were going to be out, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. And uh, luckily the bank, um, the bank was able to, to, to track it down. I think in like a couple day period, the money moved like six times. So I guess that's, that's how these guys work. But um, so, it, so it all worked out. It was pretty, pretty intense for, everyone involved for a while and, and luckily the bank was able to 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 fix it but just a good reminder out there to to you know verbally <laughs> confirm those wiring instructions on on deals because this uh it seems like these kind of things have these attempts at least have proliferated over the last few years no doubt so okay so if you're if you're giving advice to a client you would tell the client, make sure you get who the escrow title officer is from me, sure. the agent, get the phone number from them, call them directly, talk to them on the phone, get the instructions. Yeah. So when you say spoof the email, like these buyers are literally think like the email address shows that it's the title company. Right. So I think, I think they break into the, like the, the buyer's email somehow. And they, they know that these, you know, they can figure out a deal's about to close and then they, you know, send like the fake email with amounts that look similar to what the buyer is expecting and and that's how they do it. You know, so now a lot of the title companies now you see on the bottom of their email footers, it, 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 always, it says like, please, you know, call to verify water uh, wiring instructions like that's kind of always um, there. So, um, yeah, yeah. You, you got to watch out for that one. <laughs> 
Totally. Yeah. Well, this is, obviously it's a great lesson for people to just be, to be cautious of. One of the things that I thought was super interesting in, in talking to you pre-show is generally I find that the natural progression of a, of an agent is become an agent, become a team leader, become an investor. And usually they're so thankful that they're an investor. They oftentimes give up their teams and they ride off into the forever sunset. But in discussing what was most passionate to you, you still mention your team. So can you take us into like, what makes you passionate about your team and, and what was the reason you decided to build a team and not just be a solo agent? Well, it's, it's about getting uh, some of your time back. Not, not all of it. Right. Cause as you build out your real estate team, your, your responsibilities shift and where you spend your time shifts, but it doesn't, it doesn't, go away so don't don't get into it because you think you're going to build a team and not work again your 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 work is just going to change like you might do less showings and less listing appointments but now you're you know doing more lead generation more training more recruiting so it it's it's the work the work doesn't go away it just shifts so don't don't get into it for the wrong reason um you know, but but I think for a lot of people, it can be at least more predictable type of work, right? Like if you if you have agents that partner with you on your deals, and you know you're the rainmaker driving the leads, well, maybe you can control nights and weekends a little bit better now, right? Um, but you're you're still gonna you still have to put in the work. So I think it's it's an opportunity for you to build out. Uh, more predictable schedule, more income, make an impact on more clients, and then also help help newer agents or you know even experienced agents to get better at their craft. So you have to kind of approach it as like, how am I going to add value to team members, agents, and more clients, and make my life better? But you're not don't so don't you know if if you have that mindset, go for it. If you have the mindset of like, I'm going to build a team so I don't have to work, then you're in the wrong, <laughs> wrong mindset, I think. Absolutely. Without a doubt, because you're not, not working anymore. You're essentially just switching roles. You're taking the next step up, which is teaching other people how to do what you've already learned. I would love to hear, since you have so much experience, like what are the biggest challenges that people that are starting a new team are facing? Well, I think I think right now in the market it's it's uh, deal flow, right? I think I think there's less deals out there than there was a year ago. Um, twenty twenty one. Now let's put it in perspective, though. Twenty twenty one was twenty one, twenty two percent higher than than normal, right? If you if you did like a ten year, there's a good good article on this by Mike Dupree a few months ago. Um, if you did like a ten year average on you know number of deals, um, twenty 21 was 22% higher. Now 2022 is 20 some odd percent lower than that. So if you just look at it on a two year window, it looks terrible. But if you look in a 10 year window, we're at a normal pace, but still declining. Um, so I think the, the challenge, you know, a challenging thing right now for real estate agents, especially one starting a team is, um, you know, how do I, how do I navigate this period of less transactions than what we've seen in the prior year or two, but, but don't, don't like take it as despair that it's 2008 because there's not, there's not indications yet that it is. 
and, and it's probably different. Um, and even though transactions are down, the commission pool has actually gone up, right? If, if you look at, if you compare it to two years ago because of where prices have gone. So um, still a lot of opportunity out there, just not as easy as it was a year ago. <laughs> Totally. And so generally, like the way when I think through it, I think about, well, the ideal situation is that agents had already been in the business for a few years. They've already prepared. They've set aside their reserves. So they have that. But for those that haven't, either they're just entering new or for whatever reason, they spent all their money on Miatas and other uh, things that they wanted to buy. What, what advice are you giving them today, either mindset wise or action wise, that's, that you think will help them get through it? Well, one of my mentors actually was having this conversation with me about how to prepare agents and told me it's better to overcorrect than undercorrect. So I think if you're looking at your reserves, you know, ask yourself, what if, what if I need these twice as long as I think, right? And then, and then get, get to that liquidity level. And so I think, I think overcorrecting and is better than undercorrecting. And I think correcting too soon is better than correcting too late. So um, I would have that mindset and then, you know, really dial in and know your numbers and cut out, cut out the stuff that is not profitable or maybe you're just doing because you're <laughs> lazy and haven't looked at the ROI on that marketing or, or because it's more of a vanity, <laughs> ego-driven marketing decision, right? Like cut out that stuff and double down on the lead sources that work, um, you know, do more SOI database, past client referral kind of stuff, pick up the phone more. Uh, I had, an, I had one of my, one of my agents got a, a lead on a $7 million expired listing the other day, um, that, you know, he's, he's getting ready to do an appointment for. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of low cost ways to get leads. So look at, look at those. <laughs> Absolutely. Without a doubt. Um, if there was ever a time to start cutting costs, I think that would be an excellent time to do so. Like you had mentioned, and you can never have too many re reserves, especially with the direction the market is in right now. And we were discussing on the pre-call. I mean, right now it's a low inventory, low demand market, which as far as I'm aware of, is extremely uncommon. So what kind of pivots do you think agents should be making right now based on that information in order to make sure that they strive no matter what happens in the next six to 18 months? Yeah, I think you need to improve your sales skills because, you know, a year ago, you show a buyer house and it's just like, okay, how, how aggressive do we have to be to win out, right? Whereas now it's like, you got to have conversations with them like, okay, what if we do a temporary rate buy down? What if we get the seller to pay closing costs? Um, you know, is an arm better than a fixed or should we look at a permanent buy down, right? So you need to, you need to be financially uh, savvy enough to and, and know the products that are out there to have those kind of conversation with buyers. Uh, you know, when you're talking to sellers, you, again, it's not like a year ago where you just list it and collect offers, you know, you need to, Explain to them how you're going to market it. Explain to them the pricing strategy. Have a have a price reduction strategy uh, that's kind of baked into upfront. You know, like if we're on the market for this many days and don't have this amount of showings or offers, then we're we're 
cutting by this percent automatically, right? Like have, so you need to be skilled enough to, to have these types of conversations. So I think, you know, agents really need to focus on improving their sales skills uh, right now. 100%. And that's, those skills will serve them in any market. When it's a good market, you'll do more business. And when it's a down market, you'll do more business. So I super love that. Now you've written a book, obviously, hyper local, hyper fast agent. When I thought about building, you know, my business in the past, we actually decided not to do hyper local so that we could go faster. We thought, you know, we would call expireds and FISBOs, which were easy uh, because they were ready to go. But that took us geographically more spread. I would like to dive in to what are some of the key components of building, because there's a lot of value, obviously, building locally. What are the key components of building a super fast business locally? Yeah, I mean, doing doing it locally is, is going to... It's going to allow you to um, get more benefit from being concentrated in one spot, right? Your your listings are all going to be closer together. Your showings are going to be closer together. So you're going to get more use of your time. You're going to be able to become more of an expert. You're, I think you'll be able to like snowball deals into, you know, more deals, right? Because your, your listing is, you know, if you have two listings in an area and you're driving a lot of buyers there, they're probably looking in that area. Like that's going to help you more than having, you know, two listings that are an hour apart. So I think it just gives you more time and the ability to, to grow it faster than, you know, if you're completely spread out and don't have any concentration of force. So, um, you know, I, I like to use the example of like, if I picked up a bunch of pebbles and I, and I threw it against the side, this huge like glass window inside of a building wouldn't do anything. But if I, if I picked up a, a big rock, <laughs> threw it into like a small window, it'll, it'll break through there. Right. So I think the more you can concentrate resources into a smaller footprint, the more impact it will make. Absolutely. And that makes a ton of sense, right? Because time is essentially the most valuable resource because it's the only one that you could never, ever get back. So when we're defining local here, what do you think is the ideal radius for somebody to be working if they're trying to do the hyper local, hyper fast model? Yeah, I always think more in uh, not necessarily area, um, but just the amount of people. Um, and I, I like to tell people to stick to like the 500, you know, home to a thousand home range, certainly no more than like 2000 when you're starting out. Um, you know, I, I started with a couple hundred and then just kind of expanded it as I got market share and, and, and deals. So I think find an area that has good turnover. If you can find an area with good turnover that doesn't have you know, one, two or three dominant agents, that's even better. Uh, one, one way to look for those types of areas is to find a building or a community that's about three years old, because typically the builder and his team kind of sell, sell the neighborhood and move out and don't stay in touch. So there's a good chance there's not a dominant agent in there and it's ready for turnover. Oh, yeah. Love this. Right, I was going to say, absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. I love how you tied it to population and housing count because, you know, it, it depends 
I mean, it will vary greatly depending on what market you're in, what kind of radius you're serving, but you're still serving essentially about the same amount of people. Um, so I was curious, like what kind of marketing strategies when you're going hyper local like that? So, I mean, I'm in Chicago, if we're talking like a 2000 house thing, I mean, that's probably within five, 10 miles from me. Like what kind of really specific market strategies would you be marketing strategies? Excuse me. Would you recommend somebody utilizing when you're going hyper local like that? Um, yeah. So figure out your value proposition to the area. Like how are you going to save those, those buyers and sellers time, money or, or stress, right? So figure out your value proposition and, you, know, you just have to, you need to figure out multiple ways to communicate it to them. So, you know, you're going to want to do direct mail, newsletters, um, you know, email marketing, online uh, events in that area, right? I, I like to think of, um, you know, ways to get five or six or seven different marketing channels to the target group and then do it a lot right? Do it, you know, for multiple times a month until you start to gain traction and don't, don't do what most agents do and, you know, give up after two or three months when it's, it's about to start working. <laughs> right. Well, and one of the things that I love about what you're saying is essentially surrounding the concept. So you're like, you're saying pick a condo development or, or something like that, where everybody shares something in common. And I think like, you know, as you guys have funnels and you guys have studied marketing and, and all of those copywriting elements, being able to call out a specific avatar is one of the most crucial things in the success of those funnels. And by doing your strategy, you're essentially, you're able to have a hyper specific avatar, like, you know, all the people in this development. And so how, how valuable do you think that is? Like, do you guys leverage that element in like, what you send to them as far as specifically calling out those developments? Yeah. I mean, you, you, uh, I, I think you're going to want to, the marketing you send to them, you want to make, you want to make it very targeted, you know, and specific to, to that neighborhood, to that building. So the more, the more you can make it like you're going to be the real estate agent, the real estate team for that building, for that, that neighborhood, that zip code, whatever it is, the better. So, you know, you, you, yeah, you, you specifically, you want to make your content as specific as possible. Um, and you know, it, it may be like, if you have 2000, uh, people you're, you know, maybe it may be better to break them up into like three or four different groups if you can, right. If you have the, the data or, you know, the ability to figure out, okay, these 500 have this in common, these 500 have this in common, right. So, so the, the better segmented, uh, your, your targets are your, your target market is the more you can, uh, really add them unique, uh, value and, and, and content, which will give you more traction, you know, higher open rates, higher response rates, all that good stuff. Yeah. I mean, especially if some of your copy email copy is, is surrounding something that happened at the complex or near the complex and that type of thing. One thing I want to talk about, cause you talk about agents giving up too soon. A lot of times I think they give up because they don't know that it's about to work. And so therefore they give up or maybe they feel like they're in an imposition. I know when we train salespeople, they're just so concerned that they're, you know, causing negative feelings in other people. So 
one of the times that I see that happening with agents is like the more you ask them to reach out, the more the weirder they feel. But you guys are hitting these guys a lot. You said it was like five or six times a month. How are you able to hit them so often and and have it be a positive effect as opposed to wow, these guys are like badgering me? Yeah, uh, I think you just have to kind of have thick skin and realize, you know, some people some people aren't going to like your content, your messaging, and then you'll they will they'll self select and, and and leave, and you know you don't have to work with them, so that's that's a good thing. But it will it'll attract more of the people that do like your messaging. So I think you just have to not worry about it. Realize that some people are not going to like your your messaging, your marketing, and you got to be okay with that. Um, and and add add value, right? Like, you know, you can add a ton of value to to a group of people, and in that same group, there will be some people that are repulsed by it for some reason, right? You know, and, and you just have to realize that that's that's their fault or problem, not yours. <laughs> Absolutely. Without a doubt. Um, what I'm really loving when you're talking about these marketing strategies is, is you're talking volume and a lot, like really high volume. You know, everybody that does sales, they always say, oh, it's a numbers game. But usually when they, people talk marketing, they don't really consider it a numbers game as much, or at least I don't hear it parroted off quite as much. Um, and you're talking high volume and high volume works essentially the same way in marketing because even if it's a bad marketing material if you send enough of it out you're still going to get positive responses so i've always looked at marketing as outflow equals inflow the more that you send out the more you're going to get back and then you could optimize along right. the way you get better and better and then all of a sudden your conversion rates go up and all of a sudden you have a, a machine that as long as you keep it on you keep the leads coming in um <clears throat> to transition a bit um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Yeah. So I'll, I'll ask you a question. So essentially you're really doing a lot for these communities. They're probably close to your house. You're, you're delivering a lot of value. Do you find yourself like developing a lot of friendships in these communities? Like what, what is like maybe some of the fringe benefits that agents get, um, do, do like, is essentially like, do you just become engulfed in it or what is it like? Yeah, I mean, if you live in the area, definitely, like, you're gonna, you know, you'll be out eating and see clients or people that know your marketing, right? So that that's gonna happen. And, you know, some people may like that other people may may not, you know, they may want uh, more, more privacy or whatnot. But um, yeah, you you're gonna make you're gonna make friends, right? Oh, this is why in my in my book, one of the things I talk about is um, when you're picking the, the, the target market you want to go after, make sure it's a group of people that you would want to do business with, right? Like, uh, cause if you're, the more you, you like your, your clients, the more, the more you love them, the better chance you have, I, I believe in having long-term success. Like, you know, you could, you could probably have some short-term success with a doing business with a group of people you don't really like, but over the long run, like that's, that's going to eat at you. Right. So I think, and, and you're not gonna be able to provide as much value. Uh, so it's just subconsciously it'll be some, a hindrance. So upfront, make sure it's, it's a group of people that you're going to want to be in business with long-term. Uh, but yeah, if you succeed at it, you know, you're going to build friendships and a reputation and, you know, kind of be, uh, you know, part of the community. 
Absolutely. I love how value driven you are because almost every response thus far, you focus on giving value, which is always, it's always the best way to run a business because the more outweighed the value that you're providing is compared to the other agents, obviously the more successful you will be. Um, and also defining the avatar, like you just mentioned is so crucial in a real estate agency business. Like if you're working people that you are actually want to spend time with and be friends with, obviously the likelihood of your success is going to be a lot higher. Um, so you briefly glossed over having events previously. I would love to talk like broad strokes, like what kind of events do you recommend that people run and how do they drive traffic to them? Well, when I was starting out, I would, I would do um, buyer seminars in like the buildings that I wanted to get business on. So so buyer seminars uh, have, have been pretty big for us over the years. Uh, if you have a listing, you can make an event out of that, you know, like hire a food truck or, you know, make it make it like your open house, you know, your first one at least, like make it like something that really brings in the neighborhood. Um, so, so for us, it was the events were typically centered around uh promoting listings and, and giving education on, on the buyer side. And we also have done a good job of rolling out client events and, and doing those over the years. So uh, actually in two days, we're doing a Santa brunch um, that we host in our house. And we've, we've had almost 500 people RSVP. So I don't, I don't know how we're going to host it actually, but um, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully they see Santa quickly. Uh, <laughs> But that's just an example of like an ongoing event that we've done, um, you know, to to stay in touch with clients. So I think there's, you know, a couple, there's like community and client events, there's events around your listings and then educational ones to, to help people get the information they need about buying and selling. Okay, cool. So I've got a strategic question for you. So the way that I often look at the market is that as the market progresses in a positive direction with prices going up, number of sales going up, generally that seems to me to favor traditional buy and sell retail style business. As markets crash and recess, a lot of times it seems like more investors are doing the transactions. One, I'd like to know if you believe that's true. And two, would you advise a strategy shift away from some of those elements like the community building elements to a more investor centric marketing or what would you advise there? I would, I would just do both. Right. Like, I mean, the, the events, the events don't cost much to put on. Um, and if, if they do, you can probably get sponsors for them like lender and title partners to sponsor them. So, um, if it's worked in the past, I wouldn't go away from it. We, we do run a real estate meetup group as well. And, you know, we can typically get 40 to 80 investors in those meetups here locally. And that costs us like $50. Like I don't, I don't really spend much money on it. Like I buy a couple 12 packs and of beer and, you know, usually, or yeah, I don't spend more than a hundred dollars on it. And, you know, we, we come, we have a speaker that talks about a investing topic and then do some networking. So, uh, you know, you can, you can, I, I would say do, do them both. Right. Um, cause there could be more investor opportunities, but I don't, I still think the regular home buyer and seller are, they're not going to disappear. Right. It, it might, maybe it goes from 
six million to five million a year in the U.S., but it's not it's not completely going away. And you know, there's there's not a lot of people too. This is like another interesting thing. Like in 2008, I think like over 25 percent of the houses had negative equity, and I think today it's like one percent. So, um, you know, most of the people that were buying at the like at the peak, uh, had to put significant down payments down. So, and, and had good credit scores. Like that's, that's another thing that doesn't always get talked about. I think the average credit score is about 50 points higher right now than it was a decade ago on, on purchases. So I I think people have better, they're better qualified and they have more skin in the game and more equity. So I think, I think there's probably, I, I think it's gonna be different, but, but I could be wrong. You know, who knows? <laughs> well, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, obviously there's not the same underlying mortgage uh, craziness that happened before. I mean, there's not, I mean, with the, you know, institution of uh, Frank Dodd and all those elements where you don't have agents and lenders buying off appraisals and all that kind of stuff. You have real appraisals with people that have real, you know, down payments. I do think in that way, it's very, very, very different. Right. Uh, most people, hopefully, and even like when you go to get home equity lines, like they're not letting you borrow 100% of your house unless if you're VA or something like that. So yeah, I've I've, um, I've seen like 80 or 85 maybe on that. I've, I haven't, but even those are like not as much. It's typically like 75 to 80% combined LTV right now. Um, so yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're definitely more cautious than I first started buying houses in the early 2000s and it was completely different, like wild, wild west, you know, like lenders would tell you how to like fill out things and to, which they, I don't know, they probably shouldn't have been doing, but some of them maybe got in trouble, but uh, yeah, it was, right. it was completely different. How fun. So a lot of your strategies surround community, which is super awesome from a relational standpoint and so on and so forth. You kind of were alluding to earlier, this idea of privacy. If you have an agent that's a wildly private person, is this strategy a good strategy for them or would you recommend something different? I think so. I think, I think they, I think they can still do the same thing. I think, I think a lot of good salespeople are introverts. Um, you know, I think, I, th- I, and I think sometimes we confuse the definition of extrovert and introvert. I, I, I'm, I'm more of an introvert myself as well. I think the, the, the difference is extroverts typically get energy from being around people, meeting new people, introverts, it, they have to put energy into that, but they could still, I think introverts can still be really good at like locking in on someone and figuring out what their, their needs are and then presenting how they will, you know, solve for that. So I think introverts can be great at this. Just, just realize that that's who you are and, you know, be okay with saying no sometimes to social events or missing out. But, um, yeah, I, de- I definitely think this still can work for an introvert. You just have to recognize what your skill set is, what you like doing, and and find the ways to do what you're good at, what you like at, that also drive business. Love it. So I want to take this in the direction of you and your wife working together. You guys have built an amazing thing individually. You guys are incredible. Collectively, it's just unbelievable. Like it seems like a one plus one equals three type of thing. 
has has it been a smooth ride? Has it been like ever, you're just singing Kumbaya the whole time? Give us an idea of what it's like to work together and maybe some of the high points. If there are low points, like what have you guys done to smooth those over and, and create a good working environment? Yeah, so I think you have to you have to have regular meetings. Uh, it can be very very busy for or, or get very very easy to get each of you get busy. You're both do, working on your you know your own thing, and then you're you're not seeing what the other's doing, so you're not seeing the complete picture. You know, you may think you're like putting in all this work, and this is what's important, and they've got a different vision of that based on you know where where they're at every day. So I think you need regular weekly meetings where you kind of go over your goals, challenges, wins. Uh, you need to have have those. Uh, to make sure you stay aligned and that you are recognizing the value the other person's providing. So I think um, when those low points do come, like lean into having more regular meetings with your with your partner, you know, and and you have to realize there's a uh, spousal relationship, right? But then there's also a business relationship, and I think. I think sometimes it can be easy to fall into the trap of um, taking taking the other person kind of for granted in a way that you wouldn't do with someone that was strictly a business partner. So uh, I think you just have to remain in gratitude and have have regular meetings where you're reviewing the things I talked about: goals, challenges, wins, all that good stuff. Absolutely. 110%. Um, so this actually ties into something I heard Alex Harmozy say recently on a podcast or one of his content platforms. Obviously, he's crushing it right now. He works with his wife and he said one of the most important things for him was um, number one, like a division of labor. So you're not working on the same things and you have sort of unique views on the business every day. So when you're communicating, you're not essentially always talking about the same things and also he strongly encourages a, a division of location right so he has her work on the opposite side of the house while he's on the other side so when they get together when work is done they have far more to talk about because they haven't been sitting on each other's laps all day essentially so i was just curious what your thoughts were on that perspective I'm, you cut out for a half second can you can you repeat the last part again i'm sorry yeah, sure. I was just curious on your thoughts on Alex Harmozy's perspective on working with a, with a spouse, which was, you know, the division of labor that you're working on different things so that you have things to talk about after work and also a division of location so that you're not right on top of each other all day. And when mm -hmm. you're done with work and you're back to, you know, spousal activity, you know, it just keeps it a little bit more fresh because you're not right on top of each other all day. And I was just curious on your thoughts. Yeah, you definitely need to have swim lanes, right? And, um, you know, and like, you know, I'm the lead on this. She's the lead on that kind of thing, right? And you, you have to have that established. So I completely agree with that. Uh, agree that some separation of space is probably good if you're like around each other constantly in the same office, you know, that, that, it's probably okay in spurts, but not forever. So yeah, I agree that, that you need separate lanes, some, some separation of physical spaces. And then, yeah, at some point you gotta, you gotta turn it off. It, 
um, you know, it might be hard to do in certain seasons or certain times that you're going through, you know, for us, um, you know, we're, we're really leaning in right now in a lot of different areas, a lot of cool things that we're doing and pushing through. Um, so what, what we do, we, we make a really concerted effort to, you know, when, when we're done at five or so, um, the next couple hours, we're going to really be focused on, you know, dinner, kids, family, and, uh, and we'll try to shut off from work during those times so that we can really enjoy the kids. Cause that's, you know, they can take your, they can take your business away. You could, you could lose it all, but your, your kids are the, you know, family is the most important thing. So don't, don't sacrifice that time, especially when they're young. So we, we really try to spend that time just focused on them. And then after they go to bed, if we have to talk about work for another 30 minutes or hour, um, we'll do that. But, um, you know, you definitely need to have some time to, to shut off. And for us, the most natural way to do that is to like, okay, this is our kid time, family time. And, and, it, and it's a break from it, right? You know, no matter how good or how bad the day was, we, we've got at least, you know, three hours uh, with them that where they're the focus. Um, and, and we try not to let work interfere with that. Love it. I'm so glad you brought in the family component because that, that leads me to a question that I'm excited to ask because I have four kids. And so we're in the thick of it right yeah. now. And so I do believe that successful entrepreneurs are such a small percentage of, of the U.S. population. I mean, the number of people that are entrepreneurial anyways is pretty small. And then obviously there's a pretty big failure rate. So you're going to have some interesting perspectives and things that you want to make sure that your kids either like have adopted as beliefs or skills what it, if you could have it your way, what are the most important one to three things that your kids will walk away with when they become adults as a result of you and your wife's uh, instilling in them? Well, we, yeah, we try to, that's a really good question. We have four as well, too, or age almost two is the youngest and then the oldest is like seven. Um, so we are, we are right there with you. Um, I, I think for values and, and practices that we, are trying to instill in them. Um, we want them to have gratitude. So, you know, at dinner, we like to ask them what, what their favorite thing was that they did that day, what they're most grateful for that day. Um, so we, we, we definitely want to instill gratitude, uh, in them. We want to, we want to instill, um, financial responsibility, with them and, and, and goal setting too. So, you know, like the other day, our oldest wanted to go to Dave and Buster's, which is, uh, uh, it's just like a restaurant with games and stuff like that. Right. And not a big deal. We could easily go spend a couple hundred bucks there with them. But I said, well, let's, you know, that costs money, Braden. Let's, um, let's set a goal of how many, how many agents we want to, you know, bring into the EXP family right in the next month and if and you know you can help by asking me every day checking in on it all and, and we, we like set up uh two cups with with like um i forget if it was like rocks or pebbles or you know something to count and we we, we move it at dinner after you know if, if we um if we you know depending on how the day went and um so that's just like one example of something we do there right we're, we're setting like a goal that it's really up to me to, to do, but he's a part of it and can support in it. And then it's, it's hopefully teaching him, you know, goal setting 
not just spending money whenever you want and delayed gratification. So uh, we, we try to work on those kind of things with them and, and integrate it into the business as, as much as we can. Absolutely. I love that answer. Um, number one, I mean, because it ties your family into your business, right? So like they're supporting your business and it's also, it's teaching them that, you know, even though you may have the money already, like value is important. So you're teaching your kids in order to achieve something that they want in order to get the goals that they want to accomplish, they need to provide some sort of value in order to get that. Um, so thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. I'm going to probably implement that like immediately. Um, I'm curious, like what kind of challenges have you guys faced being a spousal power team essentially? And how have you been able to overcome them? I think the biggest challenges are just when, uh, when you get away from regular coming back together and, and, um, you know, doing like an overview of, of the different businesses and areas you're working on and goals and challenges when you, you know, the, the more we have those kind of check-ins and meetings, the better things are. And if, if we haven't had them for a while, you know, we really will we'll, we'll end up butting heads over things or thinking, you know, this is better over here. Or this is the way to go. So, um, you know, when we when we get to that point, uh, which has happened a few times, we'll we'll try to do like a getaway, uh, you know, and get in a different environment, get away from the kids, um, maybe go to an event like we did one a while back with other couples like you know, business minded couples like mastermind. So, um, you know, if we get away from those regular check-ins for too long, then we really need to have a, a more focused break where we're changing the location, the environment, and really, um, going over our long-term goals, short-term goals, and, and how we get back into alignment. Love it. So I have a little bit of insight into some of the elements behind the scenes because we're both in a group together called GoBundance where you where you shared a lot about your financial success. And I know it's been immense. We love to ask the question, essentially, if you had a billion dollars in the bank and 100 lifetimes of cash flow, you're financially free. How do you spend your time? Does it look different than it does today or does it stay the same? Mm. That's a that's a good question. Um <laughs> I, I've never, I haven't, I haven't thought that. I, I think if if you get to that position, you're gonna have less immediate stress in your life. Uh, you'll be in a position to to delay gratification and rewards for longer. And I, I think if you're able to do those things, you're gonna be able to have more of an impact on more people, um, you know, my, my guess is you'd probably spend more time on hobbies and with family, but maybe by, by doing that kind of stuff, you're in a better headspace and you go from eight hours of work a day to three or four, but it's like really deep work and like super focused. And, and so maybe it's more productive, but you know, I'm not at that point. So this is just, this is just kind of theoretical. Um, so I, I, I don't, I don't env envision myself just 
piecing out though. So I think, I think, I think, uh, I think, I think your outlook would change and therefore how you did what you do would change, but your, your purpose would, would probably not change if, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I love how you emphasize impact almost immediately. And then you, you put a nice little bow on the end and tied it together with purpose, because I think anybody out there not trying to have an impact on the world, on their social circle and so on and so forth, they're really not living their life to their fullest. Um, Dan, I would love to know 2023 is right around the corner. What are your big goals for the next year? Mm. Yeah, so um, I recently moved over to EXP, um, which is you know an amazing platform. I've, I've just in a few months added almost thirty agents in like twelve different states. So now I get to help real estate agents anywhere. Um, you know, plug into what I'm doing and give them ac I give them access to my coaching programs to help them build their business. I help them with recruiting to build their, their revenue share groups. So that's, that's been really fun. Like half of the agents that I personally recruited have already brought over other agents, um, which is building their, you know, recurring monthly income. So I want to, I want to continue to do that. My goal, uh, by the end of the year, next year into 2023 is to be over a thousand agents in the group. So um, wow. I'm really focused on that and you know, how do I get more agents, uh, into this ecosystem and let them plug in and, and help them build their businesses and grow it in multiple ways. What an amazing goal. You're going for a thousand pretty much year one. Um, that is extremely impressive. 30 agents, like you said, in 12 States and you said only a few months, I mean, you're off to a fantastic start. I am fully sure that you're going to go ahead and crush it next year. Um, Dan Lesniak, it has been an absolute pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into your life and into your business. Um, billion dollar agent, best-selling author, Dan Lesniak is a rock star. Um, to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is acquired one action at a time. Um, and Dan has provided us a link to a free book to discover the four stages to dominating your first year in the real estate market hyper fast. So I'm going to assign to you to go click that link, download the book, read it within the next seven days, tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one.